1: Jesus is called the friend of sinners, not in this text, in Matthew 11, but here we see it very admirably. We've seen that the whole story of the Gospel of Matthew is that of an advancing kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And every kingdom needs a king, and Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. But as we've looked at it, we're trying to understand how his kingdom is built. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. It doesn't advance by military conquest or by power. How does it advance? How does someone enter the kingdom of heaven? We're going to see that today. We're going to see the way that Jesus Christ builds his kingdom. Now, recently in presidential elections, we've seen a major change in the way that candidates package themselves for the American people. I could really use that word, couldn't I? As political process has been mingled with uh, advertising and marketing agencies and all that, there's been more and more of a concern constantly for what the people think about every little thing. What do they think about the color of a a tie that the candidate is wearing or the tone of voice or inflection when he said this or that? They have focus groups, people that come together and they're paid for their time, $50 maybe, and they sit around a table and they'll watch a speech and they'll react moment by moment, up or down. Do they like it? Do they not like it? Constantly concerned are the politicians for the ebbs and flows of, of the populace. They're concerned about what people think, what they like and what they don't like. We're going to see in our text today that Jesus Christ is not that way. He doesn't care at all what people think about how he builds his kingdom. He's going to choose a tax collector to be an apostle. Now, are you stunned by that? Does that amaze you? Are you you stunned by the fact that he would take a tax collector and make him one of his own? Well, that's because you weren't a first century Jew. If you lived in Jesus' time in Palestine, you would have had at least six good reasons to hate a tax collector. Six good reasons, they. say. What are they? Well, number one, personal. You'd have personal reasons to hate a tax collector. Why? Because that man sitting in that booth is taking food off your table. He's taking things away from you. You'll go out and you'll throw out your net. You'll have a huge catch. you bring it in. And there he is. There's Matthew waiting for his share. And so you had personal reasons to hate the tax collector. You also had national reasons. Behind the tax collectors was the tyranny of the Roman Empire. The Romans were Gentiles. They were outsiders who had conquered Israel and were ruling over them. The Romans were seen as national enemies. Any patriotic Jew would hate a tax collector. That's why it's all the more bizarre that Matthew and Simon the Zealot would be together, brothers in Christ. We'll get to that by and by. But if you were patriotic, you had good reasons, so you believed at least in the first century, to hate a tax collector. What about theological reasons? Well, devout Jews understood that they were on the promised land. Palestine had been promised on oath to Abraham. It was Abraham's land. And through the sins of the people, the breaking of the covenant, they had lost dominion or sovereignty over the promised land, but they desperately wanted it back. And they felt that the Messiah certainly would come and give them sovereignty over their own land back. But here was this class of people that was selling out to the Romans. They were doing their work. They were collecting money for them. Theological reasons to despise them. How about ethical reasons? The tax collectors were characterized by greed, by avarice. They frequently collected far more than was required. And what did they do with the extra tax money? Well, they pocketed it. And they lived high. And they lived mighty. And they lived large. And for ethical reasons, therefore... They were hated. And behind them was the might of the Roman Empire so that if you got upset, if you objected, if you crossed them in any way, heaven forbid that you should attack or kill one of them, the full might of the Roman Empire would come down on you if you touch one of those tax collectors. There were also social reasons. For all of these reasons, tax collectors were seen to be outcasts. Nobody wanted them around. They were pariahs. Nobody wanted them close. Well, we're social beings by nature, and so we're going to hang around with somebody And so who are they going to hang around with? Well, the other outcasts, the other rejects, the sinners, the way the Pharisees called them. And so they were socially outcasts. And finally, they were morally rejectable. Many tax collectors used their excessive wealth and earnings to live immoral lifestyles. They would have banquets. They would have feasts in which immorality occurred. And fine, upstanding Jews would stand on the outside and say, this is what you get when you're a tax collector. Six reasons to despise a tax collector. Now, I'm going to say again what I said earlier. Jesus Christ came and chose a tax collector to be one of his apostles. Are you stunned? Well, you should be. Matthew, in writing the gospel, shows his humility, shows his willingness to to open up his past and say, this is what I was. This is the life that I lived before I knew Jesus Christ. And so he follows in the long line of writers of Scripture who are willing to bear their own sins to all posterity to show that the true hero of every story is God himself. The true hero of the Bible is God, the mercy of God. And so we see even more than Matthew's humility, we see Christ's greater mercy. More than anything, this is the story of a stunning and sovereign, gracious God, Jesus Christ, who saves a wretched sinner who really has nothing to offer. Now, as we look at the text, you're going to see eight things that I'd like you to look at. We're going to see the choice... We're going to see the collectors. You're going to see the call, the crisis, the commitment, the celebrations, the criticism, and the correction. They all just accidentally begin with C. It's just an accident. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Here we see the choice. Now, what do I mean by the choice? I mean Jesus Christ's sovereign choice. Christ's choice of us precedes our choice of him. He said to his apostles, of whom Matthew was one, in John 15, verse 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Matthew was sitting there listening. It was truly true of him. In Matthew 11:27, 27, Jesus said, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so the Son is choosing to reveal the Father to Matthew. Christ's choice comes first. The initiative in the story is with who? It's with Jesus Christ. He comes to Matthew. He walks by and he speaks to Matthew, follow me. The initiative is with Christ. Later on, he would choose Matthew to be one of the inner circle, one of the 12, one of his apostles. But all of this is of grace, not of merit. The commentator John Calvin said this, that Matthew from his tax office should be "...received into Christ's fellowship, yea, called even to the office of an apostle, is an illustrious example for us of the grace of God. It was Christ's will not only to choose simple, blunt men for that rank, to bring down the world's wisdom, but also this tax officer who had followed a career of small credit, which had involved him in a great many corrupt deeds, to make him an instance of his free goodness and in his person to teach that the calling of us all depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his sheer generosity." He is a picture of grace. We also see in this choice of Christ, we see His independence. I've already mentioned this. Christ doesn't care what the neighbors think. He's not concerned what the Jews will say. He's not worried about the Pharisees standing on the outside being critical. He knows what He wants in His kingdom and He goes and gets it. He looks with a vision that we don't have. He sees with a sight that we don't have. His thoughts are not our thoughts. It says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, speaking of God, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if you had been putting together a kingdom in those days, would you have chosen a tax collector? I think not. But you and Jesus think differently. Me and Jesus, we think differently. Jesus is different than us. His independence we see. God looks at the heart. And as he reaches down into the heart, he's looking for things we're not looking for. He actually is looking for brokenness. He's looking for a way that his grace may be magnified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, Paul talks about the Corinthian church. And he says, brothers, look at what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. So we see the independence of Christ. We see His willingness to put His kingdom together the way He wants to. His ways are different than ours. He wants to choose outcasts. He delights in what we reject. <laughs> and He rejects what we delight in. This is the way He is. And more than anything, how wonderful is it that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by our actions. Jesus is willing to put together a kingdom of sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Secondly, we see the collectors. This is a tale of two collectors, is it not? We've got Matthew and we've got Jesus. Matthew is a tax collector. Jesus is a collector of men. He's a collector of souls. He knows what he's seeking and he's seeking souls. Matthew's constantly collecting, gathering, accumulating. Jesus constantly collecting, gathering, accumulating. Christ, the collector of souls, a focus on souls, 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 every day. That's what he was concerned about. The other things meant nothing to him. They would burn in the end. Matthew got up every day concerned about what? Money, money, money. Material possessions, accumulating stuff for this world. And so we see two collectors. When Jesus saved another tax collector, Zacchaeus, he said in Luke 19, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost Jesus is a collector of what was lost he's a collector of souls now Matthew every day in getting up looking for money collecting money he shows that his heart is full of greed It's full of idolatry greed is in fact according to Colossians 3 5 idolatry and so he has displaced God in his mind and is willing to establish money he's willing to establish material prosperity a comfortable lifestyle over his love for God As a result of this, he's willing to break off fellowship with his fellow Jews. It didn't matter to him enough to be going to the temple and worship there. He was willing to be a spiritual outcast and all of this for money. If he was anything like his brother tax collectors, he was also living high in the hog with golden goblets and enjoying his life. Sin was destroying his soul. So what was he collecting? He was collecting wrath day after day after day. But Jesus came to collect him and save him from the wrath of God. Thirdly, we see the call. Look at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And here's the call. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. This was a life-changing event. This was a fork in his road. From that day forward, nothing would be the same. And it all starts with the call of Jesus Christ. Simple words, follow me, he said to him. Now, we have here, therefore, the external call of Christ. If you'd been standing near Matthew in the tax booth, you could have heard those words, follow me. Your eardrums would have vibrated. You would have heard the sound. There was an audible call, follow me. But before that call even occurred, some things had happened. Realize that Matthew's tax booth was in Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' base of operations. It was his center. That's where he did his work. It was his home area. And so many miracles had been done in Capernaum. Matthew had heard about them, probably had seen some of them. It wasn't coming completely out of the blue. Jesus was not a total stranger to Matthew, but rather there was a history that had already been built up. And on the basis of that history, Jesus is going to come and harvest this soul. He's going to come and he's going to call him into his kingdom. Follow me. But realize this, the external call of Jesus Christ is insufficient. It's insufficient for salvation. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus himself said it in Matthew 11:20 and following. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And he included Capernaum in it. He said, woe to you, Capernaum. Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum. What is he saying? Well, he's done miracles in front of them. He's done teachings in front of them. And they did not repent. And so something more than the external call must go out. There must be an internal transformation. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be transformed from within. It's not enough for Jesus just walk by and say, follow me. There had to be an internal call, an internal transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that there was a hearing with the soul of the call, a hearing with the, the ear of faith. My sheep hear my voice, said Jesus, and they follow me. And so there is an external call and there is also an internal call of the Spirit. That brought Matthew immediately, fourthly, to a crisis, what do we mean by crisis? Well, the external call brings you to a point of crisis. It brings you to a point of decision. You need to know what to do. What are you going to do? Satan is going to flood the mind at that moment with temptations. He's going to flood you with reasons not to get up from that tax booth. Do you know what's going to happen, Matthew, if you follow him? It's over. Your career is finished. F- temptations flooding in. Is he going to follow or is he going to stay? Christ is is not one for minimizing the crisis is he he's not going to make it easy now it's going to be comfortable it'd be a good lifestyle for you come on if you have any questions come and talk to me it's not that way at all he walks by and says follow me it's a command from a king and he's already said in matthew eight twenty, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head that's the kind of life it's going to be it's a crisis Matthew sixteen twenty four through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it into eternity. What good would it be for a man to gain the whole world? Tax collector. <laughs> what would it be? What good would it be to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is not one for minimizing the crisis. You want to follow me? You've got to pick up your cross every day and be willing to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and to the fullest. Only a man thus totally committed in discipleship can experience the meaning of the cross. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lust. Bonhoeffer was right. When Jesus calls you, he calls you to come and die. To die to yourself, to die to your worldly ambitions, to die to a comfortable lifestyle, to die to earthly pleasures, and to live only to please your master, Jesus Christ. This is a real crisis, and Jesus is bringing Matthew to it. He had already said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. You cannot serve both God and money. Either he will hate the one and be devoted to the other, or he will despise the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew must choose. You must choose. So he's bringing him to a crisis. Matthew cannot remain where he is and follow Christ. Do you see that? It's a command. It's dynamic. Follow me. Stop what you're doing and move. Follow me, he says. Now, this is what I say to you. Jesus Christ is the greatest friend that a sinner ever had. Because, yes, He finds you in your sin. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. It doesn't matter how low you've sunk. It doesn't matter what you've committed. Jesus Christ is your friend. He's the friend of sinners. But He's so great a friend that He will not leave a sinner in their sin. But He will command them to come out of their sins and follow Him in holiness. You cannot stay at that table, Matthew. You must follow me. From that time on, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You've got to think about a whole different life, Matthew. It is a crisis. Well, that brings him to commitment. Follow me, Matthew told, or he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Do you think that Matthew's up in heaven right now rejoicing at the truth of this text? I think he is. Praise God, I got up and followed. Praise be to God that I didn't stay there. That Satan's temptations were insufficient. That the internal call of Christ was enough to overcome every obstacle. This is the faith that overcomes the world, even our faith. It conquers every obstacle. And he didn't stay seated. He got up and he followed. Actually, Luke 5.28 says that he got up, left everything, and followed him. He underscores it. He left everything. Well, what does that mean, he left everything? Well, understand what's going on. Matthew, said the chief tax collector to Matthew. You can be replaced. You get up and walk away, don't bother coming back. Because there are other greedy Jewish people who would be very happy to sit down in your seat and become wealthy. So you get up and walk away, that's fine. That's your decision. But don't come back. Don't come back. Well, he knew that. He knew that walking away meant his career as a tax collector was over. And yet he did it. In February of 1519, Hernan Cortes landed near the Yucatan peninsula, peninsula, established a city called Veracruz. He had 500 conquistadors with him, 20 horses. His purpose was to conquer the Aztec Empire. But before he went, he burned the 11 ships that had carried them to those shores. And the men stood on the shores and watched them burn. There was a near mutiny at that point, but he overcame it and said, we've got only one thing before us and that's an empire to win. And they knew they could not turn back. Does Jesus call you to burn your ships? Yes, He does. He says, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of heaven. You burn your ships, and you go win that empire with me. Follow me, said Jesus. And so, He made the commitment. He stood up. The attraction of Christ was greater than anything that His career as a tax collector could offer him next comes the celebrations the celebrations i think we skip this too much in the christian life we skip it too much we have a wrong view of god Do you know that our god is a happy god do you know that he's a joyful being he rejoices all the time he's not grumpy he's not irritable he's not out of sorts and he certainly isn't leaning over the ramparts of heaven to see if anybody down there is having fun and tell them to stop it that is not god Our God is a God of joy. He's a God of happiness. What is it in this world that destroys joy and happiness? Is it not sin? Is it not sin that's brought all this misery upon us? And therefore, redemption out of sin brings us into a life of joy that cannot be calculated. Celebrate if you're a Christian. Rejoice and be glad. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. A tremendous joy is waiting for you in heaven. What does he say in Matthew 25, 21? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the happiness of your master. That's called heaven, folks. You want to know how happy God is? You're only going to find out in heaven. And when you enter into the joy of your master, then you will know at last what what it was all about. Our God is a joyful, celebrating God. He's not grumpy and out of sorts. And you know why? Because everything is on schedule. He is sovereign, he is ruling, and his kingdom is advancing and nothing can stop it. And he is about the business of saving souls. And Satan can't stop him. He cannot stop him. And so, there's a great deal of celebrating to do. Now, there's two celebrations in this text. There's a celebration, or connected with the text, I should say. There's a celebration on earth at Matthew's house. But then there's a celebration up in heaven before the angels and God. It's not mentioned in the text, but it happened. Because the Bible said it did. Look at verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Luke 5.29 uh, puts it a little even more accurate, or not accurately, but a little more detailed. You know, Matthew's always keeping things simple. It's one thing I've noticed about Matthew. His his account is always understated. Levi turns it up, or, or Luke turns it up a little bit, calls him Levi. That's another name for Matthew. He held a great banquet for Jesus wasn't just a dinner. It was a great banquet for Jesus. It was in Jesus' honor, this banquet. My Savior, my Lord. And he invited his friends, tax collectors and sinners, to come. It's a banquet with food and joy and laughter. You know something I've noticed? One of the themes of Jesus' life is attendance at banquets. Have you noticed this before? He's frequently seen at banquets. Now, he fasted like no man has ever fasted before. Forty days and forty nights, tempted in a direct way by the devil. So he fasted, but when the feasting time came, he was there feasting. Do you remember where his first miracle was performed? At a wedding in Cana of Galilee, where he turned water into wine. Then there was the feast or the banquet at Simon's house, where the woman came and anointed him, Simon the Pharisee. And then there was, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, they had a great dinner in honor of Jesus, and Jesus was there. Furthermore, in his parables, he's mentioning one banquet after another. Do you know if you're a Christian? Your whole life is drawing you nearer and nearer to the greatest banquet that's ever been thrown in history. The wedding banquet of the Lamb. I can't wait. I can't wait. That's what it means. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Do you realize our salvation? your salvation, if you're a Christian, is nearer now than when I began preaching this morning? Isn't that great? Every minute brings you closer and closer to the greatest banquet there's ever been. Do you have a place reserved? Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's all about feast. It's about banquet. Are you, do you have a, a place reserved through faith in Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus was a banqueter, and it bothered the Pharisees. They're upset about it. They're always angry about this because of the guests. Who came to this? Well, tax collectors, we've already talked about them, and sinners. In the NIV, it's in quotation marks. What does it mean? Well, it means people that have basically given up trying to obey the law of Moses. They feel like they're so deep in the hole that there is no way they will ever get out. There is no forgiveness, no atonement, nothing that can be done for them. And so, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't really matter how I live. I'm so far in debt anyway. That's what a sinner was. And the Pharisees stood outside criticizing this this assemblage of guests at Matthew's house. I think what Matthew did is he went through his, well, they didn't have Rolodex. I guess we don't have that either anymore. It's all computerized. But he went through his list of friends and he invited all of his friends to come. And why? For evangelistic purposes. He wanted them to know his Savior. And so Jesus came there not just to feast, but so that he might witness to them. You know something? We get surrounded by unbelievers in a party and we get sucked down to their level. Can do anyway. Jesus gets surrounded by sinners at a party, and it's an evangelistic rally. I guarantee it. How does that work? Jesus Christ can touch the vile, pussy, diseased hand of a leper and transform it so that it's healthy, pure, and clean like a newborn baby's. He has the power to be at that party and be a holy man and preach the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what I think was going on. Well, that's the earthly celebration. What about the heavenly one, the heavenly celebration? You know, in in Luke 15, there's three parables about the lost being found. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, there's the lost son, what we call the prodigal son. The uniting theme of these three is that the lost thing gets found, and then there's a great big celebration as a result. The lost sheep in Luke 15 It says, when he finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Joy in heaven. They're celebrating in heaven when one sinner repents. Or the lost coin, Luke 15. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then there's the prodigal son. He finally comes home. And what does the father say? Kill the fatted calf. Bring a ring for his finger. Bring shoes for his feet. Bring my best robe and put it on him. For my son was dead And now he's alive again. He was lost and is now found. Older brother, standing outside, very angry, very upset. I slaved all this time for you. You never gave me even a calf or anything for my needs. I'm not going to go in there and this son of yours who's been wandering in sin comes back and you kill the fatted calf for him so he stands outside and the father goes out and he's got to plead with him he says we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found our god is a celebrating god and it is right for us to celebrate when the lost get found do you know that david barrett who does the world christian encyclopedia estimates that 20 million people come into the kingdom every year through conversion I don't have any idea if that's true or not. But let's just run with it. That means that approximately one person every second gets saved from every tribe and language and people and nation. How much celebrating is going on in heaven? Is there like a whole angelic detachment that just does nothing but celebrate all the time? Isn't that incredible? More joy in heaven over one. And that happens every single second somebody gets saved. Well, then's the criticism. Look at verse 11. How tragic is this? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees are playing the role of the elder elder brother at the banquet. They don't want to come in. They're not going to be defiled by those people. The Pharisees' holiness was all about separatism. They're staying away from the sinners. They don't want to touch them. They don't want to get involved in their lives. They sure don't want to be near them or eat with them. They're not going to have anything to do with them. They're too holy for that. But at the core is a self-righteousness that says, you better dance to our tune. John the Baptist, he never banqueted. Never banqueted. And they said he had a demon. (laughs) Son of man comes banqueting and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And why are they angry? Because Jesus would not dance to their tune. He wouldn't go along to get along. They played the flute and, uh, and 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 he wouldn't dance. When it was celebrating time, as far as they were concerned, he didn't celebrate. When it was morning time and they played a dirge... He celebrated. And they hated him for it. They were angry at him. But instead of going courageously to Jesus, who do they go pick on? Then they, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Picking off the weak ones. And so Jesus has to go out and confront them. He's got to go answer them. They don't go to Jesus. They go to the disciples. And so finally we see the correction. Verse 12 and 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. How does Jesus correct them? How does he reach out? Well, first of all, he speaks from life experience. What is a physician for except to reach out to sick people? What is a courageous physician for except to go into the middle of a plague-infested town... With no fear of his own getting infected, no fear of his own disease, and minister to every single sick person who needs it. Jesus was a courageous physician, surrounded by sinners. He's a physician who came to heal the sick. What do the Pharisees do for the epidemic? Not a thing. They just stand outside and make sure they don't get infected. They're not involved, they don't want to touch these people. They don't want to get involved in their lives. they just staying outside. And yet, in, in effect, their heart disease is worse than anybody that ever lived. And why? Because in order to get saved, you need to know that you're a sinner. And they didn't think they were. And so they called other people sinners and they called themselves the righteous who didn't need a Savior. And so they stood outside and criticized. Jesus corrected and said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It is the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners, Luke adds, to repentance. I'm not going to leave them in their sin. What are you doing for them, Pharisees? And then he quotes scripture to them. Go and learn what this means. That's a Pharisaic formula for you haven't studied the Bible carefully enough. Go and learn what this means. Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Pharisaic religion was all about meticulous observance of religious rules and regulations. They gave a tenth of their spices, mint, dill, and cumin but they neglected the center of the law. And what was it all about? It was about mercy for sinners like you and me. If it had been about condemnation and judgment, God would have done that a long time ago. Now, what application can we take from this? First of all, look at Christ's sovereign choice. Christ's grace is utterly unpredictable. He delights in choosing and saving some of the least attractive people on earth. Don't write anybody off as unsavable. You never know what the grace of God is going to do. He does the most surprising and amazing things. Also realize that Christ's sovereign choice precedes any choice you made. We love him because why? He first loved us. Understand that's the solid foundation of your salvation. Secondly, on the collectors. Can I ask you a question? What are you collecting? Every day you get up and collect something. What are you collecting? Are you collecting material possessions and money and, and ambitions and ladder climbing and all the stuff that Matthew was about? That's what he did before Christ called him or are you more like Jesus who every day is collecting souls for the kingdom jesus said unless you're collecting with me you're scattering he who does not gather with me scatters what are you collecting third of all third the call the external call was made by jesus in his day he walked by the tax booth and he said follow me who makes the external call now it's people like you and me witnesses who have personal faith in christ and go out on tuesday night or at other times and reach out with the gospel and say follow christ Come to faith in Christ. Are you willing to go out and speak a word for Christ? When's the last time you invited somebody to church? When was the last time you spoke to somebody that you believe was an unbeliever or you didn't know about Jesus Christ? Can you speak a word? Can you give the call? Fourthly, the crisis. When you're witnessing, don't try to minimize the crisis that Jesus Christ comes to bring in someone's life. Don't say it's going to be an easy, comfortable life. But rather show that the fact of the matter is you must leave all things to follow Christ The commitment. Have you burned your ships? Cortez burned his ships. Did you burn your ships? Or are you trying to live two lives? Trying to serve both God and money? Trying to turn, you know, both ways? Have you made a full commitment to Christ? The celebrations. Do you realize that joy is part of the Christian life? As a matter of fact, the central part. Do you realize that right now, even while I'm preaching, celebrations going on in heaven. Joy over sinners that are repenting. Rejoice with God. The criticism. Are you willing to associate with people who aren't like you? Do you want a neat, tidy, comfortable church? Or do you want people in here who may be a little bit messy? Maybe a little bit difficult. Maybe their lives are a little out of control and they need Christ. Do you want people from northeast central Durham in this church? Are you willing to witness and lead people to Christ that Jesus would associate with? Or do you just want people whose lives are already mostly together and then they add Christ to it? None of us are really like that. We're all sinners. Are you willing to associate with people that most people would consider rejects or outcasts? It's difficult for most American church people to do. And then finally, the correction. Do you realize that Jesus Christ desires mercy and not sacrifice? That he desires that you follow him and love him and know him and not some meticulous religious observance day after day?